love. Some would say it took a backseat when the pandemic forced us apart. As a family-run and proudly Canadian-owned company, Charm Diamond Centres saw the need to bring us together with tales of love and created the Canadian Love Map podcast. Since then, we've shared hundreds of real, uplifting stories that prove love conquers all. So thank you for listening. We couldn't do it without you. And remember, love starts here. This is a true Canadian love story. We were meant to be together. I can't imagine my life without you. Honestly, he's a light of my life. It's nice to be in that tractor beam of love. I'm her biggest fan. I think I knew I'd lost my heart again. I knew I wanted a marriage like that. Difficult roads can lead to very beautiful destinations. Well, love is the most important thing. But the memories that last are the love. And, you know, her brokenness, her gentleness, her fragility, but always the courage and the fortitude, always the strength that even when she was hurting, she did it in silence. And she never, ever let us lead her. Hi, I'm Nancy Regan. Today's love story belongs to the celebrated Canadian author Donna Morrissey. The subtitle of her 2021 book, Pluck, makes it clear what it's about. A memoir of a Newfoundland childhood and the raucous, terrible, amazing journey to becoming a novelist. But also woven into the book is an extraordinary love story between Donna and her mom. This Mother's Day episode is dedicated to the late Claudine Adele Ford Morrissey. This is the Canadian Love Map. Donna Morrissey, I'm so happy to have you here. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Nancy. It's always great to be sitting across from you. There is so much to talk to you about. We could record 48 hours and be still going, I know. But today, I really want to talk about your relationship with your mother. Okay. Because what you wrote in your memoir, Pluck, just touched me so deeply. And when I thought about what episode we wanted to have around Mother's Day, you were the first person that came to mind. She was the first person that came to mind. Well, she would love to hear that. Yeah. Set the scene for us in terms of what your childhood was like. Just, you know, set yeah, that scene. Yeah, well, I was lucky enough to be born in an isolated uh, outport. So we had no electricity, uh, roads or anything like that for at least the first 10 years of my life. And, uh, well, we had roads probably when I was about five or six. You know, I saw my first tractor <laughs> ran in terror. And... <laughs> And so it was very, very isolated. And even when the rest of the world or the rest of the province um, caught up with Canada, you know, in terms of uh, confederation and in terms of um, modernity, we were still very, very isolated because we were just a dead end road. We were in the northwest eastern part of Newfoundland and we were the last houses down. There was nothing else there. So even when we got a road, we were still isolated. Nobody came. No one was driving by. <laughs> no, no, no. You had to go like 20 kilometers through the woods and wilderness to get to us. Wow. What do you remember about your mom? Apart from that one memory, what it, What are your general impressions of, of what she was like as a mother when you were a young child? They were the matriarchs. Our mom, they were, you know, dads that were gone. They were in the woods uh, hunting, uh, um, cutting logging or gone fishing. So the women were the matriarchs. They were the force. They were the ones, like my mother was always the the pillar in the household, calling out to us, you know, delegating tasks, yelling at you, 
they were everything. And my mother was very uh, uh, strict and uh, and kind. So we weren't allowed to get away with what a lot of kids uh, got away with in Newport at the time. We weren't allowed to talk in the old language like and made a saucer or going to church on Saturday or scratch me forehead. You know, we weren't allowed to talk like that. We had to say mother, mother and father. And uh, we couldn't drink our tea out of our saucers. And so our mom was a bit proud like that. Yeah. So that makes me immediately want to dial back the hands of time further. Let's go back to her childhood. Yeah. Tell me about her. Well, they were educated. They came from a place further down the bay than us. But however these things, quirks in time happened, my mom's family, mother and father, they were educated. They could speak, write Latin. You know, they were, I don't know how they came to be where they were. Uh, my grandmother was the clerk in a post office, you know, and uh, my uncles wrote in calligraphy. And when they went to the war, World War One, at that, uh, they were made um, secretaries because they could write. Yeah, and just beautiful handwriting. So they were kind of interesting like that. Huh. And so what did she do when she grew up? She had gotten a good education. How did the romance with your dad start? The courtship was very short. (laughs) As my father was very, very shy. And he just wanted to get away with all of that and just uh, get straight to it. So (laughs) one day, you know, he packaged up his, uh, he bundled up his sleigh, his dog sled, you know, and they went 40 miles down the bay on ice and uh, for him to ask for a hand in marriage. And of course he got there and he was very, very shy and he clung to the fence post and hands literally froze onto them because he wouldn't leave it. My grandfather had to come out and ply those fingers away from the fence post and pull the guy inside, you know, and said, what do you want? That is hilarious. Yeah, that's a story. It's amazing he could choke out that he actually wanted her hand in marriage. I don't think he ever did. (laughs) I think she did the asking for him. Oh, my gosh. And so what was young married life for them like? They were very uh, in love, and uh, it was a little traumatic, actually, because their first firstborn died uh, after he was born for about two hours. And so that was very traumatic for my father and my mother. Mm-hmm. And then I was born, of course, and uh, then the next one died as well, and then the third one died. Mm-hmm. So they had a lot of trauma in their, in their young lives, and uh, my mother never ever got over the death of those babies and uh she's she lived a a lot of guilt uh of that because you know when you're in the outports you go to the midwives and that's how you have your babies Mm -hmm. and my mother uh even though a part of her wanted to go to the hospital because she was more modern in her thinking the, the outport just wasn't set up for it the infrastructure wasn't there to you know you had to get on dog sled and go to a train 30 miles away to get you know so you just went to the nearest uh, midwife, which was three miles away. And, <clears throat> and my mom always believed that if she had gotten to a hospital, you know, those tragedies wouldn't have happened. And uh, so, again, it was one of these things that she never, ever forgave herself for. And then, of course, with the third child, she did get him to a hospital. And then he caught a disease in the hospital and died. Oh, my and goodness. And so, so it compounded her uh, guilt because, you know, then she felt she was being punished for the two that she... So, it, you know, I said in the book as well that guilt is not something that proclaims itself, you know, loud and clear. It just kind of sits on your shoulder and it kind of seeps into your bones and manifests itself in ways that you don't really understand until years later you understand what that, that anchor is you've been dragging all your life, you know, that bag of bones, you know. 
I remember when I read that, I literally had to put the book down because it just, it, it sat with me. You know, I had to sit with that thought of and guilt. feel it myself and feel how that was true for me because it, it impacted me in such an emotional way when I read it. I was like, oh, that's a breadcrumb. <laughs> there's, yeah. there, there's something deep there. And that was actually really helpful to me in terms of my own excavating my own story. Yeah, so, and, I, and I always say, you know, when people want to talk about writing, my first question is always, like, what, what did you connect with? Because it's always what a reader brings to a book, you know, that cements that relationship that, yeah. Yeah, that's beautiful. It becomes more telling about the reader. Yes. You talk about the trauma of the lost babies, but even your birth was traumatic. <clears throat> it must have been for your mother because it was traumatic for me reading it. <laughs> Except that when you're living in the Bay, those things happen and you're... You may not want it to, but you're not surprised by it. I mean, the wind is always up. Someone's always getting caught in a storm. The fact that my mom was in labor going up to the midwife, you know, it was just that that's something that you can understand and handle and deal with. It's something that is external to you. you just know. tell the, the story, something though. That's, the, the story, well, <laughs> yeah, she, she went into labor and uh, she should not have gone in the boat that day. And my aunts and my grandmother were all on the bank. No, no, no. And my mother was, no, no, damn this. I'm going to the hospital, you know, because she just lost the first one. Yeah. So her plan was to go to the hospital. But I started coming way too fast. And uh, by the time we got to Hampton, I was already crowning, so to speak. And my father was freaking out. My mom was like writhing underneath the blanket that she was covered up in. And people were running down to the beach because back then you knew somebody was coming ashore on a boat on a day like this is a reason. Right. Something's happening. And so all these people were coming down and they was shouting, go get the midwife type thing. And, and they carried my mom to the first house. And then the midwife came down there, and that first house was uh, Effie Osmond's house. And um, uh, so I was born there, and uh, she um, three days after I was born, her house burned down. And I was born on Friday the 13th, right? right. So she, she, every time I saw her after that, I was like, you burned out my house. You, you burned out my house. You know, I was like, no, no, Effie. And uh, anyway, my penalty was I was called after her. Her second name was Viola, so my second name was Viola. Donna Viola May. Wow, that <laughs> yes. is that is prestigious. Sounds like a clampet. <laughs> I picture her crossing the street whenever you came walking along you the road. Burn exactly. <laughs> I'm avoiding that girl. Yeah, she's bad news. What was your relationship like with your mom as you were growing up? Like most girls, I think I was very very shy, and uh, I suppose most girls were shy. I kind of hid myself a lot, so I didn't have that deep connectedness I, we didn't have the talk about sex or you know breast and I need a bra we didn't have those conversations they came out in bizarre ways I didn't write a lot of stuff in this memoir I can do another one <laughs> <laughs> with the leftovers yeah yeah, yeah so um, but she was very um, vigilant in terms of homework and getting in at night and not going to the hangouts you know which was three miles up the bay the jukebox and the pinball machine you know and the boys so she was very vigilant around all of that. And then, of course, on the day that I failed, but it was grade 11 and uh, you couldn't go any further. It was night school. You know, she got me to the city 60 miles away where she had an uncle, a brother. And she set it all up 
there's, there's, this is it. You're going to go to night school. You're going to get your grade 11 and you're going to go to trade school and you're going to be a secretary. And, uh, and that's your plan. If not, you're going to come back to the beaches and work in the store for the rest of your life. What do you want to do? What did I want to do? I wanted to be a hippie, man. <laughs> <laughs> we had television by now. Yeah. I wanted a headband. <laughs> I wanted leather bands around my wrist and dangly hoops. And I wanted to smoke pot and do all that stuff. It's legal now. I can say this out loud. you know. And the big city was calling you, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, sure it was. Cornerbrook, 25,000 people. It was New York to me. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah. Well, and then you eventually landed in Toronto. Yep. And I know you you went through some challenging times with addiction and uh, not challenging. Good. Oh yeah. Yeah, I love drugs. I I love drugs and I connected with it big time and it was a lot of fun, big parties, uh, rock and roll concerts. It was a really really, you know, great time. It's only in uh, in adulthood do I look back and say by the grace of God. Go, mm-hmm. go I, you know, but the, back then it was wildly exciting. And uh, but then, of course, uh, the drugs got too heavy and the needles crept in and people started falling. And then uh, it was no longer fun. Then it was time to get out. And, and I did. I was one of the lucky ones. Yeah. I did get out. And uh, yeah, a couple of others, you know, uh, helped me do that. And um, and then it became a different kind of journey. So what was your mom's role during that time? Did you sort of she separate from you? Oh, she didn't know. She would never know. I was in Toronto. You know, yeah. she would, we would call. I, would, I didn't share any of that. Once she told me that she had to get some teeth out and they gave her a needle, she said, oh, my Donna. She said it was the nicest thing. She had the light in the ceiling broke into like a million green, shiny pieces. Oh, Mom, I did that once. And I was just whack inside the back of the head. She understood exactly what I meant. And I was like, we didn't go there again. Yeah, that's that's uh, interesting how our parents can be so oblivious to <laughs> a major part of our life. Yeah. Like that was a huge chapter yeah. of your life. And, and, and she didn't know that. And then, of course, uh, very shortly after all of that, I got pregnant, had a child. And that's when uh, I forged a new kind of relationship with my mother, because it was a year after my son was born. I ended up moving back home for two weeks and ended up living there for a year. And it became this incredible year of my mom and I uh, living as woman to woman side by side. And I started, you know, seeing, you know, the mother, I I started seeing her as an adult. Mm -hmm. She was still my mom, you know, and, uh, um, but, you know, we were starting to have a glass of whiskey together. And once we even smoked a joint together. So it was it was a different footing uh, altogether. Uh, but then, you know, things really uh, went. Things changed with my brother's death mm-hmm. and my mom changed forever and I changed forever and everything changed forever. And so then we then there was another relationship that forged itself out of that. This podcast is brought to you by Charm Diamond Centers, Canada's largest family-owned jewelry store. They are proud to be putting love on the map. And the staff at Charm Diamond Centers are thrilled to be a part of your love story too. So visit CharmDiamondCenters.com or one of your local stores. Love starts here. I loved the line in your book, um... Ellie's quote, it's hard to stop being a daughter and stand woman to woman with your mother. Yeah, and uh, mom's cancer forced me to do that. And you're giving me goosebumps as you read that. Uh, um, because they don't sound like my words. You know, they sound like mm-hmm. yours coming at me. And uh, 
And that, that's a hard. I think that's the most challenging thing of all to do, the intimacy of being a woman with your mother and, you know, taking her to the hospitals and um, undressing her with the, 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 the scars, you know, and, uh, and the scaly skin from hmm. radiation and stuff like that. And, and, and you're witnessing that with her. And she's so self-conscious of that, but she needs me there to help. And uh, so you're forced into this intimacy that neither of you really want. Mm-hmm. And desire, yeah. It makes me think that in a way you don't see someone's strength until you see them in weakness. If you understand what I mean. Well, yes, I do. But again, it's in hindsight because even then in those moments, I was still the daughter. Uh, even though we were doing these womanly things together, she was leading it. She was the strong one and she was the one that, you know, was... Uh, somehow navigating her way through it and I'm following her even though I'm leading her um, she was emotionally leading it is the what I want to say she wasn't crying she wasn't whining she wasn't complaining she wasn't uh, doing anything so I'm following that trying to hide my fear mm-hmm. and it's only in hindsight <laughs> that you know that she was hiding her fear mm-hmm do you think she was doing that for you? Oh, absolutely, because I wouldn't have been able to handle it. I can't handle it now. Yeah. 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 I love the fact that she was writing with you in a way. <laughs> yeah. And and she played such an interesting role in you becoming a writer and seemed to have just had this deep abiding faith that you were a writer. Do you think that's true? Or? Well, just. And that goes right back to the childhood again, where her family were the learned ones. They mm-hmm. were the ones who somehow knew Latin and, and Latin writing and stuff. And uh, <clears throat> and so that was always in her, that desire to go um, into the world, to be a uh, missionary. Because back then, that was about the only thing that was available for, for women who were you know self-motivated and desirous of a career. It was one of the very few things. And so that was always in her. And so... In those last days, you know, uh, when I'm doing the writing, that so appealed to her. And she so loved that I went to university and I would just, every time I got an A, I was on the phone like, Mom, I got an A. It would be like she got it too. She was so supportive and encouraging of all of that and proud of it. So when I started writing the book, it was, yeah, you know, she could see this. She understood this. Let's 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 do it. And uh, and again, I it was line by line, word by word. She was there. And I, I would read out things to her and and I would ask her questions you know and uh and she'd answer them in ways and you know and she she would she would I mean I was just learning a computer I didn't know we hadn't had computers back in my day so to speak and I was in my 40s now and had my own computer and if it stopped working all I knew to do was turn it on and off (laughs) push this button and that and my mom didn't even know that you know because she'd never seen the damn thing before but yet when it would go off and I'm like, oh, my God, what now? She would be the one leaning over my shoulder, you know, her arm broken in seven or 14 places with bone cancer and going, you know, uh, trying to jiggle it or figure it, like fix it. She 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 had that kind of intelligence mm-hmm. and uh, problem solving skills, you know, like that just came intuitively and naturally to her. So she was such a force. She was always that strength beside you. Beside me. 
The book you're talking about is Kit's Law. Yes. So it was this really amazing collaboration in yes. a way with yeah. your mom. Um, and it, of course, became a bestseller and an award winner. It's really a show off of a book. Uh, so many people in the world have, have just, you yeah. know. Got translated to in it seven and, different languages, oh, and uh, and my mother did the ending. Like she, she said, like don't go giving it the happy ending because she knew the plot and she knew that it was going to end in a way that was insolvable. And she's like, don't you give that the happy ending because you know she'd read her share of Harlequin romances and true stories, and uh, you know she knew it was trite. Uh, with all due respect, I've read thousands of Harlequins, don't get me wrong. <laughs> even tried to write a few. <laughs> I even tried to write a couple, and I couldn't. Uh, you know, so, but she knew it wasn't literature. Yeah. And so this she took to be literature, and it's like, don't give it to Happy, and don't do that with it. And uh, she knew that intuitively. And, you know, the damn thing was... Excuse me, darn thing. Don't go. Uh, the darn it's thing too late was, for that now, Donna. <laughs> the darn thing was when uh, Penguin, I mean, Penguin, the god of publishing, swooped in on my doorstep and asked me to sign a contract with the ending being changed from what it was, which my mother wanted. I immediately kowtowed and said, yes, of course I'll change the ending. You know, mm -hmm. I'm sorry, mom, but you're not here and I am. I'm broke. And this mm -hmm. is Penguin. And it's like, oh, my God, who would have thought? The thing was that after three noble attempts to change that ending and sending it back, each time they returned to me and said, no, this is, ah. doesn't sound genuine. It's not It's not you. It's not there. And then finally, I, I felt the, the wrath of myself and fear of, I'm, it's my first chance out there. Because my, my, when your mom died, when my mom died, you're in a state of grace. You're in a state of you don't know where you are. And you don't know how to separate your mother from you, from God, what is, what isn't. You know, you're in this state. And my feeling then was, oh, my gosh, it's my first chance at it. And I'm going to defy the laws of God because it called for an immoral ending according to the laws of Christianity. Uh -huh. Right? And uh, to give it a happy ending, it would have had to defy a law. Right. And here I was defying a law of God. So I call it Kit's law because it was Kit trying to change the law. Anyway, I, I got scared. And not not scared in the, oh, nobody will like this. Scared in the sense of God, of failing right. my own morality. And, uh, and so I, I wrote down my answer very carefully on a piece of paper and I called Penguin. Then I read my answer as if it was just coming to me. Oh, you know, and this is what I think. And blah, blah, blah. blah. And I read it all out, you know. And, and uh, after I was finished, you know, she said uh, she was the executive director of, of Penguin, you know, Cynthia Good. She was amazing. She said, you know, we have no right to dictate to you the ending of your book. She, you give it the ending that you want. And I was like, well, you already have it. <laughs> so let's go back to the first draft. <laughs> it sounds to me like your mom may have left the planet, but she hadn't left the project. That's, that was my feeling. You know, I felt that because let's not forget that my mom passed on the four o'clock on a Sunday. And nine o'clock on Monday morning, Penguin called. And Penguin had already rejected the book. So here they were calling. And I just saw my mother walking up those to those pearly gates with her arm in her cast, you know, and uh, walking over to that book of destinies and saying, you owe me one. You owe me one. And uh, she wrote the ending to that. I, I just know that. I just know that. Then anyway, my brother had a dream about two weeks after uh, 
Kit's Law was published and he came to me and he, oh man, and he said he had a dream of mom and she came out from behind our old house on the beaches where we all grew up and she had Kit's Law uh, clasped to her heart and uh, she was smiling at him oh and, uh, you know, uh, so we all had a big ball at that one. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that is such an extraordinary image and a lovely message for him to be able to pass on to you, like how powerful. Yeah. Amazing. What would you love for the world to know about your mother or, you know, remember about your mother in terms of her legacy as a human being? The biggest thing, I think, is the memory of her tucking me in at night and kissing me every night. That that the intimacy of that warmth of her uh, coming down into my face underneath those cold sheets because we just got into bed and it was always cold. That is a lasting memory. That, you know, getting a whack inside the back of the head or uh, in the butt as you're running away because you've just done something. These things <laughs> are nothing. You laugh at those. Remember the time mom got you underneath the bed with the room handle? Yeah, you laugh at those things. But the memories that last are the love. The love and, the, and, and you know, her brokenness, her gentleness, her, her fragility, but always the courage and the fortitude, always the strength that even when she was hurting, she did it in silence. And she never, ever let us lead her. She just let us think that she was. And it gets really, really complex. <laughs> Donna, what was your mother's name? Claudine Adele. That's a beautiful name. Claudine Adele Ford. I'm so grateful that you were willing to tell us about her today. I well, can't gosh. tell you how much I appreciate this. Well, I so appreciate this. And I just want to say that given how my mother was what you pulled out of that book, and that tells me a lot about you. Oh, thank you. Yeah, she's woven through uh, every bit of it, I think. And that really resonated. Well, I just want to say to all of you who still have your moms, I envy you so much and give them a real big super duper hug from me this Mother's Day because that's, you're doing what I would love to be doing. Oh, mic drop. Donna, I have one last thing to ask of you, and that is if you would read the passage about cutting your mom's hair. I just think that's such a powerful part of um, the whole way she's woven into the book. So, okay, that would be a great gift for everyone. That was one of the most significant pieces of the book for me, simply because my mother and I always had this thing about hair and uh, we both had thin scrags. My sister had the big, thick, beautiful locks, my, my two sisters. And uh, when that day came with my mother's chemo and her hair had to be cut off, it was just a highly significant moment. And so the scene that I wrote is where we put the chair in my sister's bedroom and my mom is going to sit there and we're going to shave her head. And all three of us are there. And um, you might say it was probably one of the most emotional parts of my life. And I, I, I wrote it here. OK, so my mother sat dully in the chair. Karen had sit in the middle of Wanda's bedroom. Karen wrapped a towel around mom's shoulders as Wanda and I perched on the bed fidgeting. Hair. It is everything. It is a woman's cloak. It is her brooch, her favorite color, her hope for a better tomorrow, 
once the perm has set and the rollers are out. It is our harmor. Snip. Snip. A piece of mother fell to the floor. Snip. Snip. Another piece of her fell. Karen's fingers trembled, and a lock of hair she'd lifted slipped from her fingers. She lifted it again, awkwardly, holding the scissors for a better angle. Snip. Snip. I felt faint and lay across the bed. Wanda, holding a multicolored silk scarf in her hands for Mom to wear afterwards, quivered as though frightened with each snip of the scissors. Snip. Snip. Mother's face was pinched now, as though she sucked on something sharp. And I turned away, looking through the window at a bird fluttering onto the windowsill. Snip. 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 Oh, Mom. Karen ran her hand tenderly over our mother's scalp. Here, feel it. It's right smooth and warm. He looks just like Shawnee O'Connor. Who the hell's that? said Mom. Her grumpy tone belied the softening of her mouth as she brushed hair off her shoulders and a snippet fell onto her foot. She nudged it off as though it were dirt, and Wanda half sobbed, and Karen spoke hard through trembling lips. She's the most beautiful woman in the world. That's who she is. That's not good enough for you now? Yes, mine now, said Mom, and I knew she needed anger just then. She needed it as a crutch as she rose from her chair and started towards the mirror on the wall. Her eyes were sooty dark against the paler of her skin and the white of her scalp. Oh, please don't look, I pleaded silently. Please don't look and see the bricks and mortar of your worn-down house. Don't see blood and skin over bones. But instead, hear the beating of your heart with its primal rhythm, heralding your entry into time and waiting now to herald your return home. Your bald head and crippled arm and shorn chest are nothing compared to your humble, true self, the self that will forever resonate through the hearts of those who love you. She stopped before the mirror. She emitted a small gasp and stepped back as though the sight were too much. Then she turned towards us, uncertainty clouding her eyes. Well, I'm still the same old bird, I suppose. Just lost a few feathers. Karen laughed, and I laughed, and Wanda gave another half sob, and Mom pulled a scar from her hands. Give me that. I covers it. It's fierce. Donna, go get the car. And that was our mom. Thanks so much for listening to the Canadian Love Map. If you love us, please subscribe and share. We'll be back next week with another love story to add to the map. This podcast is presented and made possible by Charm Diamond Centers. It's hosted by me, Nancy Regan, and is produced and distributed by Podstarter. This has been a Podstarter production. production.